Good morning. For those of you who were able to join us uh, last night, thank you for coming out. I know I had a good time. I hope everybody else enjoyed it as well. We, uh, if you weren't able to make it, uh, we got together and had some fun, had some food, lots of food, had some good fellowship, and uh, we spent some time together praying for the new year and for what God had in store. Um, and so as you begin this new year, I do want to encourage you to be praying for uh, different things that are, are coming up. Um, we, we spent a little bit of time last night praying for our country. Um, as you guys are well aware, our nation needs the Lord. It needs to, to come back to Jesus. I mean, that's, that's the solution. So be praying for that. Um, you know, there are, there are some that are more difficult to pray for than others, and yet... God has given us the ability to intercede on behalf of even those leaders, politicians that we don't necessarily care for. So I want to encourage you to pray for them because they need Jesus as much as you do. We also spent time uh, praying for our church, praying for our missionaries. Um, Robin posted the missionary update. I, I know several of you got the email, but there's also an update um, from our Cadence International missionaries uh, back on the board over there. So by all means, uh, make sure that you read that. Keep up to date with those. Uh, be praying for missionaries. Uh, my, my wife and I were able to be missionaries at camp for a while, and I cannot tell you how much of a difference it makes knowing that people are praying for us. Um, and if you really want to be a blessing to them, write them a little note. Just send them an email, shoot them a text, write a little note and send it in the mail. Say, hey, just want to let you know we're praying for you that God would use you in a mighty way. So there are all kinds of things that we can be praying for and ways that as we head into this next year that we can serve the Lord in amazing ways. So I want to encourage you uh, to do that in the days ahead. I'm glad that you were able to make it out. Um, if, you, if you hung out with us last night, it wasn't insanely late. Uh, we, we were up past my bedtime, but that's okay. Um, but uh, hopefully you got a little bit of rest and can probably get some this afternoon. If you weren't able to make it here and you're watching us online, thank you for joining us that way. We look forward to you, to you coming back and joining us here uh, in the weeks ahead. Um, as we start on a new year, I wanted to give you a heads up about uh, the sermon series and what we're going to be doing. Um, personally, I really enjoy Christmas. I think that Christmas is a lot of fun. I enjoy the story. And one thing that I've noticed is that, that it's really easy to read the Christmas story once, maybe twice, and then just move on and keep looking at other things. And so, over the next two weeks, we're going to continue Christmas. Now, no, I'm not getting you any more Christmas presents, but we are going to go back to the story that we looked at last week and kind of dig into a couple of those characters. I love doing character sketches and just seeing different players and how God used them and what, what was going on in their lives. And, and sometimes I, I just step back and think through like, okay, what would I do in this situation? How would I react to these different things? Um, so we're going to, over the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at um, two more characters. This week is Zachariah. Next week is Mary. And just kind of digging in a little bit more about their part in the Christmas story. After that, it is my intention to start in on the book of First Timothy. And we're going to take probably month and a half, two months, we're going to take quite a bit of time and go through those six chapters. Um, what I want to encourage you to go ahead and start now just reading through them. doesn't take very long. Uh, you can read through 1 Timothy, the entirety of it, in 15, 20 minutes, something like that. It's not real long. It might take a little bit longer, um, particularly if you get sidetracked like I do and start, wait, wait a minute, what was that? And have to go back and, and reread something. But doesn't take too long, but I want to encourage you, as we're getting ready to start looking at 1 Timothy, go ahead and start reading it. Um, there will be all kinds of things in there that just pique your interest. Now, I will admit there are certain things in there that I'm already a little bit nervous about, okay, how is this sermon going to come together? There are some things that are challenging. Um, there's some difficult theology in there. There's some difficult practical things in there. 
That's okay. I'm not going to shy away from what the Bible says. We're going to dig into it. We're going to look at it. And uh, I would encourage you, be ready for those things. Uh, be prepared and come with your questions. And, you know, we can learn from each other and, and get an idea of what God has for us in the book of First Timothy. Um, I already, I, I gave Robin a list of what each week is going to look like. But I think you noticed I had a note on there, subject to change with minimal uh, notice. So be aware, my plans are not perfect. My plans have to change. God's plans are always perfect. He has amazing things coming up in the year ahead. And so I look forward to seeing what those are. Now, like I said, we are going to be looking at uh, Zechariah today. In Luke chapter 1, as you recall, he appears, he shows up, and is greeted by an angel. But there's a lot going on in that story that I wanted to step back and just kind of dig into, take a look at. And um, when you came in, you should have gotten a supplement or a handout. I decided not to do a, uh, a PowerPoint, but instead give you a printed sheet, uh, partly because I'm going to list off a bunch of different references that we may or may not turn to. And so this way you've got a copy of them. Uh, as well as you don't have to write notes real fast because some things, as we, as we interact with Scripture, as we look at it, there are things that the original audience would have heard or read and they would have just automatically known certain things. But we, being you know, separated by a couple thousand years, it becomes a little bit more difficult. And we have to dig in and, and try and understand what's going on. So... We're going we're gonna to take a look at this passage. Um, it is a little bit of a longer passage, so I'm not going to read through the whole thing. We did that last week, read through the entire Christmas story. This week we're just going to um, kind of work our way through this interaction and what's going on with the birth of John the Baptist. Okay. Um, when I come to Scripture and I'm reading something, I come up with all kinds of questions. And I would encourage you to do the same. Don't just read through it and be like, oh, hey, cool, that, that's, it says that and keep going. But, but pause and be like, okay, what's going on here? What's, what's this all about? The, the very first one, um, it says in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. I'm like, okay, so ask yourself the question, well, who's Herod? Who, who is this guy? And then, I would encourage you to take some time and start digging into it. Because, I mean, that's, I, I think that it's valid to start asking questions of Scripture and trying to figure out, okay, what's going on? Who, who are these characters? Different things about them. And so that first question comes up, who is Herod? Well, apparently, there are like five or six different people in the New Testament that could be referred to as Herod. How many, how many of you already knew that? Probably a bunch because you're smarter than I am at times, but... I printed off um, in, that, in that sheet, there is some of that information about different Herods. Now, you'll recall there's Herod the Great, who is, is famous, world-renowned. Um, he was one of the first ones. And when, when it refers to Herod, that's actually kind of talking about a, a dynasty or a family name of a bunch of different people. That's why there's, like I said, five or six different ones that are in there. Um, his great-grandfather, Her Herod the Great's grandfather, was actually one of the first rulers in that area um, under the Romans, and he was set up as, as uh, the, the Roman governor about 80 years prior. Not, not the first to rule in that area, but one of the first of that family. And so he was set up as governor about 80 years before the time of Christ. His son was, was an important person, but then his grandson, Herod the Great, was put into power as the king or as the ruler of Judea. Okay? Now, I started digging into this, and I'm like, all right, who is he? What, what does history tell us about him? And so I looked up uh, in the Encyclopedia Britannica. It says, Judea prospered under his early reign. He increased trade, and he built fortresses, he built aqueducts, he built the theaters, but he couldn't give full reign to his desire to build and thrive because he feared the Pharisees, Judaism's controlling faction, who viewed him as a foreigner. 
Okay, so we have a, a ruler in place who's doing some cool building projects, who's, who's doing like the physical things for that country, for that area, but he's an outsider. He's not a, a Jew. Now, he claimed to be a Jew. He claimed to follow Judaism, but he didn't really live it out. He, he did some good things, some nice things. He, he brought a lot of wealth and a lot of construction. In fact, when we look at the temple, he is the one who rebuilt the temple. Um, kind of, in essence, it was like a great big remodeling project. You re you'll recall Solomon built the original temple, right? David wanted to, but God wouldn't let him. And so his son Solomon built the original temple. Well, it was destroyed when Babylon took over. Okay? Then, as they came back from exile, they rebuilt the temple. And it was nowhere near as large and grand as Solomon's temple. And that was kind of disappointing. But that was the second temple, and it was used for quite a while. Well, Herod the Great comes around and has the opportunity to rebuild that or to, to remodel it and make it a lot nicer. So if, if ever you're studying and you're like, there's a second temple and a third temple and they're waiting to build a fourth temple, or are they waiting to build the third temple and there was, that was the second? That's why there's an argument, because there's some argument about whether King, or Herod the Great rebuilt or built a new one. So if you hear second and third temples, just bear that in mind. But he, he did amazing construction projects, and it was great for the economy. But... He lost favor, this going back to the Encyclopedia Britannica, he lost favor through increasing cruelty, manifest in murdering his wife, his sons, and various other relatives. His grip on his kingdom weakened as he became increasingly mentally unstable and physically debilitated. He killed his eldest son, and as you recall from the Christmas story, he slaughtered the infants in Bethlehem all because there was a rumor going around that there might be another king. This guy had grasped power, and he didn't want to lose it. He didn't want anything to challenge his ability to rule. So he, though he may have done a few good things, he also did a lot of very wicked things. Well, he had three sons, and uh, he, he passed the rulership to those three sons, and he, divide, he actually had more than three, but he divided his rule into different um, areas for his sons to take over. And you'll recall from what we read last week that when Joseph was coming back from Egypt, he didn't want to go back to Bethlehem. Why? Because even though King Herod had died, King... I can't pronounce his name very well. Archelaus, Ar Archelaus was ruling, and he was actually basically just as bad as his dad. Uh, cruel, mean, he actually only lasted about 10 years before the Romans took him out and got rid of him because he was such a mean, cruel leader. That's why Joseph went to Nazareth instead, which, okay, pause, step to the side just a moment. Isn't it amazing how God was able to use even those evil, vile individuals to accomplish his plan? I mean, we, we looked at a couple of weeks ago how that Joseph went down to Egypt to fulfill the prophecy that God's son would be called out of Egypt. And then we, we noticed that there's another verse that says that Jesus went to Nazareth so that he would be called a Nazarene, which was fulfillment of additional prophecy. So God was able to use these guys, even though they were, were terrible, wicked individuals. Well, there was also uh, Herod Antipas. That's the one in Matthew chapter 14 and Luke 23. Uh, he was responsible for killing John the Baptist. He was also uh, part of the trial of Jesus. <clears throat> There's Philip the Tetrarch. That was the, the third son who was given a portion of Herod the Great's rule to, to take over, and he's referenced in Mark chapter 6 and in Luke chapter 3. He has a grandson. Herod the Great had a grandson named um, Herod Agrippa I. He was responsible for persecuting the early church in Acts chapter 12. Ultimately, he was eaten by worms because he refused to give glory to God. So even though there were these 
vile, terrible individuals. God was able to use them in amazing ways, and then he sometimes dealt with them as they rightly needed to be dealt with. And then finally, uh, his great-grandson, Herod Agrippa II, oversaw the trial of Paul in Acts 25 through 26. So that's, that's kind of the different Herods that show up in the New Testament. Um, like I said, there, there are five or six because there's some argument about whether Philip the Tetrarch, who, who, depending on the writing, was also referred to as Herod Philip. There's Herod Philip I and Herod Philip II, and which one's which and how that all fits together. You start digging into some of these questions. I, I can go off on rabbit trails that are just so much fun. When you start digging into the Word of God, it, it can be so exciting. I, I want to encourage you as you head into this, this year, when you come across these questions, dig into them, find out what's going on. Because as we understand that there are these different individuals referred to as Herod, and most of them are, are wicked, wicked kings, and yet they play a vital role in the story of what's going on in the New Testament. You see, Herod the Great ran Jesus out of Bethlehem to fulfill God's prophecies. Herod, his son, didn't have Joseph come back to Bethlehem to fulfill God's prophecies. The other ones that I've referred to caused the, the disciples and the apostles to spread out and to go out through persecution. You know, we look at persecution as a bad thing, as a, as a difficult thing, and it is, it is. And yet, God is able to use even persecution to spread his word far and wide. And amazing things happen through the New Testament because of these guys. There was, in the days of Herod, king of Judah, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. Obviously, we've got to find out what, what does that mean? Who's Abijah? What's going on there? Does anybody, does anybody already know? I know I'm putting you on the spot. This is a, a little bit unusual. Who? Okay, okay. So you'll recall in the Old Testament, there were a bunch of different priests, right? They started with Aaron, the brother of Moses. And then the priestly line comes from that family. Well, as time progressed, that family got bigger and bigger and bigger, right? Makes sense. When they were traveling, when the Israelites were traveling around and worshiped in the tabernacle, they needed lots of priests and Levites to be able to carry all of the supplies and all of the the stuff that was part of the tabernacle. Once Solomon built the king or built the temple, they had a lot of priests and not as many jobs. And so, because God is a God of order, David set it up. He knew that this was going to be before the the temple was built. David set it up and he started dividing them into different groupings, okay? Into different divisions. That is found in 1 Chronicles chapter 24. They're divided up into 24 different divisions, okay? After the people of Israel went into exile under Babylon, when they came back, not all of the priestly families came back with that exodus, or with, with that return uh, from exile. You'll see um, a couple of places in the Old Testament. In uh, Nehemiah chapter 12 and verse 4, Abijah is listed as one of those that comes back. Okay, So we have... David divides out the priests and gives each group assignments so that they would be able to work in a proper order. After the exile, some, but not all of those groupings come back, but then they're redivided and they're set up to be able to orderly function as they lead in the worship in the uh, temple area after the rebuild of that second temple. During the 400 intertestamental period, the the years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, there was a lot that went on with the priesthood. The chief priest did a lot of political development during that time, and at times he even, in essence, ruled as a almost king and priest in the area of Judea. Um, That's because 
After the Babylonian Empire, you guys remember from history, comes the Medo-Persians, right? So they rule over the area, and then Alexander the Great, Greek leader, comes in, conquers basically the entire known world at that time. But he only lasts a few years, and then he dies. And what happens to his empire? Well, it fractures. Judah is right at the line between two of those groupings. And so it keeps going back and forth and back and forth. And somebody in Judah had to kind of be the contact point that would pay tribute. That was, that was really the big deal, is that, that whichever ruler, whichever king, he wanted tribute from the people in all of the different areas. And so the chief priest, as a, as a leader, as a known individual, would often kind of step into that role and help out, make sure that, that the people were basically left alone. A lot of these different empires, they didn't care too much about the people or what was going on or anything like that. What they cared about was, are they getting their money? Uh, if, if so, then they left them alone, pretty much. So the chief priest started out trying to help make that, a, make that happen so that they could continue to worship without a lot of interference. Well, as time goes on, and you guys know politics well enough, uh, a little bit of power went a long way, and these chief priests... That, that system kind of developed into not only a religious, but also a political leadership. Um, <clears throat> that continued on in different ways. Uh, ultimately, in 167, uh, Antiochus Epiphany desecrated the temple, offered a pig as sacrifice, which if you remember anything about Old Testament law, pigs are unclean. Pigs cannot be offered as sacrifice to God. And yet this... This guy went in and did that. Well, that created a huge uproar, and all kinds of stuff went on with that. There was a great revolt of the Maccabees, and throughout all of this, there's turmoil in the political leadership of the country. Well, the chief priests, as religious leaders, are involved in all of that. Okay? This is just a real quick rundown through the history. But as a result, the priesthood was basically in a mess. They had become more political than spiritual, but Luke, the author here, wants us to understand something. He wants us to realize that Zacharias was not one of those guys that got all tied up in the politics and all of the stuff that was going on. He wants us to know that this guy, that Zacharias, he was a priest. He wasn't like those guys who were all about the politics and all about their personal power and all about the money. He was able to trace his lineage all the way back to Abijah, who was one of the ones that returned from exile. So he's, he's giving his reader a lot of information about the family history of this individual in a moment, and it, it takes us a while to understand what all is going on. This, this is a priest who can trace his lineage back, which was very important for the Jews, that they could trace their heritage and understand where they came from, that they had a pure line back to Aaron, as a priest who was then responsible to go before the people in the presence of God. The verses uh, continues and it says that he has a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. Not only is Zechariah of the right lineage, he's a good uh, priest who followed the lineage, he was directly from Abijah, his wife also could trace her lineage all the way back to Aaron. Well, you know, we look at that and like, oh, okay, that's cool. We know their parents. But the, the readers of this, the early readers, would recognize, okay, Luke is making a point. This, this is something important. This is something significant that we need to understand. This isn't just some guy. This is a priest of, of good quality. He married according to the law in his family, in the, the priestly line, so that both Elizabeth and Zechariah, they were upstanding individuals. We'll see in a minute that they were both righteous before God. They followed God's commands. They lived out who they were supposed to be and what they were supposed to do. These are good, modern day, at least back east, we would call them salt of the earth type people. They're, they're just good, normal folks. They're not, they're not any of the, the crazies involved in all the political appointments and stuff like that. They're just a couple of people who are trying to live for the Lord, trying to do what's right. And, and Luke has, has gone through, he says they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly. That doesn't mean that they're perfect. 
They're just normal folks, but they're trying to do the best that they can. Unfortunately, we get to verse 7. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. See, Luke has just painted a picture for us that, that these are good, wholesome, quality-type people, but unfortunately, they have no children. Now, you know, today we look at that and like, okay, a lot of people want to have kids, some people don't. But in their culture, in that, in that history, if you didn't have kids, something was wrong. Maybe it's, it's judgment from God. Maybe it's, you know, that there's a, a problem, there's, there's something going on, there's a reason that you don't have any children. And that was kind of used as a, as a disgrace. Now, it shouldn't necessarily have been, but when Elizabeth when, is pointed out as being barren, this was a huge thing to a wife. Their, their desire in that culture was to be a mother. See, they, they knew the Old Testament prophecy that there was going to be a Messiah. And so every young wife wanted to be the one chosen by God to bear the Messiah, to bring about God's plans and God's prophecy from old. They also, as I mentioned, viewed it as their responsibility and as a normal thing. Back in Genesis chapter 30, uh, verses 1 and 2, where it's the story of Rachel and Jacob. You remember Jacob, one of the patriarchs. He uh, got married, ended up, he was tricked into marrying Leah, and then, but he really wanted to marry Rachel. Well, Leah started having kids. She had four sons, and Rachel had none. And when Rachel saw that she bore no children to Jacob, she became jealous of her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children, or else I die. Like, this is a life and death type of a thing. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? To not have children was viewed as judgment from God. And so Luke here, he, he has set this up in such a beautiful way. See, he gives the, the reader information that, like I said, it's a little bit challenging for us because we're so removed from that culture. But he tells them these are good, quality, normal people, but unfortunately, they have no children. And so some people would look at that like, hey, that's judgment of God. And yet, I think Luke is getting ready to, to show, no, it's not judgment of God. It's just God's plan. God's got a great plan. He's got an amazing thing set up. So they, they were normal, everyday folks. They were trying to do the right thing, but they had, they had no children. And that was sad for them. It, it does say that, they, that Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now, we don't know exactly how old they were, but that phrase is actually used in the next chapter in uh, Luke 2.36. It's used to refer to Anna. If you remember the story of Anna, she was in the temple daily praying. She had been married as a, as a youth, as, as a young lady, and got married, lived seven years with her husband, and then he died. And she was a widow ever after that. And it uses this same phrase, advanced in years, and we're told there that she was 86 years old. Now, it's not a, not a precise uh, usage here, so we don't know exactly how old they were. But what Luke is basically letting us know is they had no children and they had no prospects of having children. They were advanced in years. They weren't going to have a baby. Luke has set up the stage for us um, so that, that everyone would understand what's going on. Now it happened that while he, Zacharias, was performing his priestly service before God, in the appointed order of his division. Like I said, he's of the division of Abijah. By this time, there were about 18,000 priests, and there weren't that many jobs. And so they divided them up into 24 different divisions, and each week, a different group would come and do certain things at the temple. 
you'll recall from the Old Testament, every day they had certain offerings and sacrifices that had to be given. Obviously, people would come in with sin offerings and individual offerings, and there had to be someone there to receive those. They had different responsibilities. And so, in a nice, orderly fashion, each group, each of these divisions would arrive and take care of the business of the day of running the temple. There were certain jobs that only priests could do, and then there were other jobs that assistants, that Levites and and others could take care of. And it was all very structured. I'm not going to take the time to dig into all of that stuff. It's, It's really neat to research, and I think I gave you a website that gives a little bit of information about that. Um, in the section under divisions of the priests, okay? Check it out. It's obviously, it's one guy's writing. It's kind of like his doctoral dissertation type of an idea. So it's really long, but there's tons of information. It's really neat to kind of understand what's going on there. But Zacharias just is one day, he's going about his regular duties. That's, that's what it's saying here. He's doing his job. He's a good, wholesome, regular guy who has a job, he, he shows up to work, and he's doing what he's responsible for. That's, that's the picture that we've, we've been painted right here. Now, there is something that you need to understand about the way that these duties or these responsibilities functioned. I told you there's about 18,000 priests and only a few jobs each day that had to be done. And so what they would do, they divided up into the 24 divisions, but then they would cast lots. And, you know, we look at that like, eh, are, they, are they gambling? Is this like a chance thing? Well, in the Old Testament, they had a, a standard set of how they were supposed to do certain things, and they recognized that God is in control of all things. And so when he wants a certain decision made, they had a way in which they determined that without the individuals making that decision. They let God decide. And so by lot... Zacharias was given a certain job, and each of the priests were given certain jobs that they were responsible to do each day when they come to the temple. One of those jobs was to burn incense. Now, this is actually like the highest job that anyone could get. In fact, they were only eligible for it one time. Once they had offered incense in their lifetime as a priest, they couldn't do it again. And it wasn't unusual that a priest never got an opportunity to offer incense. What they would do, like I said, each morning they had certain offerings and certain sacrifices that had to be done. And there's there's a big process. We're not going to go into all of that. But one individual, one priest would go into the holy place within the temple and would offer on the altar of incense this special mixture of incense to God. And the smoke would go up, and, and basically it represented the uh, prayers of the people. I listed out here on your, your paper various passages that talk about it. In Exodus 30, we have the initial instructions about the altar of incense. Uh, in Leviticus 10 and Numbers 16, we find out that God takes this very seriously. And there were individuals who died because they did the offering of incense improperly. Um, Leviticus 16 explains how this is, is really important and connected with the Day of Atonement. And then in Revelation 8, it talks about this being that, that the angel goes in and offers incense along with the prayers of the saints. And so that's where we kind of start getting a picture of what's going on with this idea of him offering incense. But it was a major part of the worship process that one priest would go in and offer this incense before God. It was a very important and very special time, and he was only eligible to do it once in his lifetime. So, this morning, Zacharias, he shows up to work, like he normally did, and the lot was cast, and it fell on him to offer incense. Wow, this is a big day. This is special. This is something important. Maybe something he'd been looking forward to. Maybe it was just he never expected that today would be his day to get to do this. I don't know. I don't necessarily know what Zacharias was thinking at this point. But he goes in and he offers incense according to the law, exactly how he was supposed to do it. He went in, he begins to offer it, and all of a sudden, right next to the altar of incense, it says on the right-hand side, an angel appeared to him. Now, 
you got to remember, it's been 400 years since God actually spoke to anyone. Now, during that 400 years, there had been some who said, oh yeah, God talked to me, and bad things happen when somebody falsely claims that. So, I can understand that he would be a little bit surprised. I'm going to guess that you would have a reaction to something like that. When all of a sudden, you're, you're going about your normal daily life. You're, you're a good follower of Christ. You want to live right. You want to do the right things. When all of a sudden, an angel shows up right beside what you're doing, what, what would your reaction be? What would you think? Huh? Scared? Okay. Surprised? I'd say that's reasonable. See, do what? Just, just scared. Just straight up. Hey. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. I'd say that's fair. I'd, I'd be scared. Like, what, what is going on here? What, how does this work? But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. Okay, let's pause there just for a moment. I mentioned briefly that, that this idea of the offering of incense is connected with the prayers of the saints going up to God. We see that primarily in the New Testament, but in Psalm 141, it brings us uh, a little bit closer in this idea. 141 verse 2 says, Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, and the lifting up my hands as the evening sacrifice. And so, it's, it's in some way associated with the idea that the people pray and the incense represents those prayers going up to God. Okay? That's why outside, while he's, while he's in offering sacrifice of the incense, outside are all the people gathered. And they're, they're waiting for Zacharias to come back out because as part of that ritual, as part of the regular process, after he offered the incense, and, and it would burn up for a while, he would go back out to the front of the temple proper area, and he would bless the people. And, and there are different writers who talk about the blessings that would be, and, and what he would say, and I, I don't know necessarily the specific ritual that Zacharias would have gone through that day. But the people had been gathered outside, praying, waiting, and worshiping, and Zacharias was supposed to come back out and bless the people. And the angel shows up and basically says, your prayers are answered. Now, he started off being afraid, and now, at least I would think, he'd be a little bit curious. Like, okay, what, what prayers are we talking about? I mean, like, the, of the people, of my own, of, of what's going on here? Well, the angel said to him in uh, verse 13 of chapter 1 of Luke, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he will drink no wine nor liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Wow, there's a lot going on in that. We're not going to dig through every little bit of that, but I recommend that you go back and read what the angel says here. The angel basically says there's a lot of prophecy in the Old Testament that your son's going to fulfill. Your son is going to be the forerunner. That's, that's one of the most honored positions, going right in front of the king and letting it be known, hey, here comes the king, make way, he's, he's on his way. And that's going to be your son. Now, at this point, what would you be thinking? You, whoa, yeah. Whoa. I'm, I'm not sure what I would think. See, we know that Zacharias is a good individual. He's, 
He's attempted to live his life for God as best as he can. He has, he has married according to God's plan. He has lived according to God's plan. He is at work doing the work of the Lord. And he's trying to take that very seriously and trying to, to do what's right. But all during this, he hasn't had a son. He's the last of his name. There, there is no heir. There is no children. And that makes his wife look bad. And I bet that that, that was hard for him. And he had prayed and desired a son, a child, and God never blessed him with that. Have you ever prayed for something for a long time and God just didn't give it to you? What, what do you do? What do you do? A lot of people give up. And I understand that. And as I read through this story, I kind of wonder if that might have been what happened with him. Because what is his response? What, what comes next? It's not, oh yeah, I knew God was going to do this. This is great, wonderful, yeah. His next statement, his next question is, how can I know this for certain? For I'm old and my wife is advanced in years. He's a little bit skeptical. He, he wants proof. In Isaac's version, it's, his, his response is, all right, prove it. He, he's, I, don't, I don't think that he's blatant and arrogant. I, I sometimes, not, not sometimes, I often wish that, that the Bible included the tone of voice in which people said things. I don't, anybody else ever wish that? I mean, it, it would make it a lot easier to understand what's going on. I, I'm just saying. Digging into this, I don't think that he's arrogant. I don't think that he's flippant. I don't think that he, it's anything of that nature. From what we know about him, he is a godly individual. He wants to do what's right. And this angel appears. And it's something that he had prayed for and, and desired. And that his wife had prayed for and desired. And God hadn't chosen to bless them with it. And then finally, while he's serving the Lord, while he's doing these things, the angel shows up and tells him, your prayers have been heard, you're going to have a son. And Zechariah says to him, how shall I know this for certain? Like I said, no, no way. Pro prove it. How, how will I know that that's really what's going to happen? I'm old, my wife's old, there's no way. The angel answered him and said, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. Zacharias asks the question, and the response that we get is, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. Who better to know the answer than someone who stands in the presence of God? If God said it, it's going to happen. And Gabriel was sent to explain that. Now, there's all kinds of stuff about Gabriel. Um, we're going to bypass most of it because, like normal, Isaac has a big lot amount and we have to narrow it down. Do a little bit of study on Gabriel. Interesting, interesting thing. The problem we run into is he only shows up a couple of times. In the book of Daniel, there are two references that have his name. And in the book of Luke, there are two references that have his name. That's about all that we know about him. Um, there is a lot of discussion. And the Jews, because he's listed in the Old Testament, the rabbis had a full-blown theory about who he is and what he did and all of this stuff. But that's just man's ideas trying to get it figured out. It's interesting to read. Um, I think I referenced that there's a, there is a Wikipedia article on those various theories and ideas. Obviously, be careful what you read on Wikipedia. It's not always accurate, but it does give an introductory to some of the ideas. And there's, there's a lot there. But ultimately, what do we know about Gabriel? His name's Gabriel. He stands in the presence of God, and God sent him to give this message. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes when I read scripture and I come up with all kinds of questions, I wish there was more information, but that's okay. 
So, in answer to Zacharias' question, the proof that was given is that he would be unable to speak until these things take place. Now, I mentioned that there were people outside waiting. The next couple of verses talk about that. They, they are anticipating him coming out. Just for a moment, think about that. There's a ritual. There's a normal process. And these priests, every single morning and every single evening, would go into the holy place. They would offer the offering of incense. They would walk back out, and they would bless the people. It was not necessarily exactly in rhythm and time, but they would expect a certain amount of time, and then the, the priest would come back out. But he didn't. And what, what do you think they would start thinking? Now, it doesn't tell us exactly how long it was, but something was going on. I kind of wonder if maybe they started thinking, did he die? Because, I mean, that's happened before. That's happened, and, and, you know, it's a bunch of priests out there and Levites and, and people who were dedicated and wanted to follow God, and they're out there waiting, and what's going on? Why is he not out here? We don't know exactly how long, but finally he comes out. And like I said, there's a ritual, there's a process that's supposed to happen. And he comes out and he cannot speak. And he, he can't continue the normal ritual. And as a result, verse 22, they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them. And he remained mute. And when the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. Now, I kind of wonder what that was like. Now, I typically have a, a fairly normal process when I get home from work. I greet everybody, say hi, tell how my day was, how was your day type of an idea. What, what do you think happened in that house that day? He gets home and he says nothing because he can't speak. I, I kind of wonder what he told Elizabeth. Now, obviously, he couldn't speak, so he couldn't just tell her, but somehow he communicated to her because later on we're going to find out that she knew that the child was to be named John. All right? So he communicated somehow, but I, I wonder how. Now, we already know that he didn't believe the, the angel when Gabriel initially told him. I kind of wonder, did he immediately start believing? Like, oh, hey, I can't speak. I, I believe it. It's going to happen. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Um, goes home and says, all right, we got to have a baby because God said so, and here's what's going to happen and all of this. Or, and, and this would probably be more my response, um, babe, you would never believe what happened at work today. In fact, I'm not sure if I believe it, but, but here's what happened. Now, again, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how that went. But I, maybe my imagination just runs wild sometimes, I'll admit. But I kind of wonder, because these are normal people. These are, these are good, like I said, regular salt-of-the-earth type people. And, and now God has appeared and has a message for them, and, and big things are going to happen. How, how did they deal with that? Well, after these days, in verse 24... Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. She kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Her first response, Elizabeth's first response, is God is at work in me. He's taken away the shame and good things are happening. I like her response. It's pretty good. Probably better than Zacharias's. Like, hey, prove it. Show me, show me how, because that doesn't work. Elizabeth is all right. God has has looked on me with favor. Now, again, that's one of those phrases that you start digging through the Old Testament, and it it means big things. The face of God looking at an individual was actually part of the blessing that Zacharias was supposed to give. Most likely, it was the, the blessing that God gave to Aaron to give to the people that included, may the Lord make his face to shine upon you. And you dig through the Old Testament, it's, a, it's an amazing phrase of this idea that the God of the universe would look at his people and interact with them 
and have a direct relationship with him. And here, Elizabeth recognizes God has looked on me with favor and he has taken away the disgrace among men. Her response was to recognize what God had done. And as a result, she stayed in the house for five months. And then Mary shows up. We're going to look next week at Mary and this interaction of what takes place. But I, I kind of wonder even how Mary felt and dealt with that because Zacharias was silent the entire time. The three months that Mary was there, Zacharias was silent and didn't say anything. That's a, that's a, a cool story. We're, like I said, we're going to hold that for next week. Jumping down to verse 57 of Luke chapter 1. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth. She gave birth to a son, exactly like Gabriel had promised. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. So this is exactly what was supposed to happen in normal situation. All, right? All the friends heard about it, and they were excited. And they praised God because he had blessed them. And good things were happening. And so they followed the law. They followed the process that was supposed to happen. On the eighth day after a baby was born, particularly the firstborn son, there was a process of what was supposed to happen, including circumcision. And so the neighbors and the friends and the relatives, and I kind of wonder how many of these folks had been praying for Elizabeth years and years before when she was of age to have children. And they knew the heartbreak that this couple had dealt with because they didn't have kids, but they wanted them. And now they show up and rejoice with them because God has blessed Elizabeth with a child, with a son. This is going to carry on the family name. Let's name him Zacharias after his father. But Elizabeth says, nope, we're naming him John. What? But his father's name is Zacharias. There's no one in your family named John. Now, we could dig into this name Zacharias, but if, if you just break out a concordance, there's about 30 people in the Old Testament named Zechariah. And pretty much all of them are good guys. They're, they're not the evil, wicked uh, kings. They're actually godly priests. And so it's a good name. It's a strong name. It's a great idea to name him Zechariah, after his father and after all of these heroes of the faith of the Old Testament. But Elizabeth says, no, we're going to name him John. Well, reasonably, they turn to his father and they, they ask, what should we name him? Because there's no one among the relatives. And in verse, I lost track of which, which verse exactly, but they made signs to his father as to what he wanted to call them. So he asks for a tablet. Now, I'll admit that this one kind of in the past has, has caused me to pause and wonder. Like, so the angel said when these things are fulfilled, well, the baby's been born. Why can't Zacharias talk yet? But Zach, do what? Verse 64, thank you. Do what? He has to be named first. In, in 64 is where that was, thank you. They want to know what to name the child. And so Zacharias grabs a tablet and he writes out, his name is John. And immediately Zacharias is able to speak again. That, that's okay. That's okay. If, if, if you can make mistakes, I can make mistakes and we're all good, right? I think that's Jim's line, but anyway. <laughs> all right. Yeah, I lost my spot. That's okay. <clears throat> yes, his name is John. There it is. There's, there's a couple of things that stand out to me in this. Uh, first of all, like I said, the angel had said that he would be mute until all of this came to pass. And yet, after the baby's born, he's not speaking yet. But as Lizka pointed out, I think that that's connected with this idea that Zacharias needs to fully obey and fully follow through on what Gabriel had said. And Gabriel had said, you will name him John. And, and so, 
this being the day of circumcision and naming, the child hasn't been named John yet. And yet, what Zacharias says is not, we are going to name him John, or I want you to give him the name John. He says his name is John. And maybe I'm reading a little bit too much into this. I don't know. But I think that, that he adds a little emphasis here to let it no, be known what Gabriel said, I am relying on. I am trusting God's word. Because he said, you're going to name him John. The baby was born just like Gabriel said, and I'm naming him John. I already did. I'm, I'm committed to that. Like, like I said, maybe I'm just reading a little extra into it. I don't, I don't know. But Zacharias obeys God, which is the major requirement. Initially, he was, he was skeptical. He was asking questions. He didn't know. And God rebuked him for that. And he spent nine months, maybe even a little bit more, in silence. But when the time comes to put pedal to the metal and engage in this activity, there's no question, there's no doubt, there's no if, maybe, who knows, his name is John. And immediately, his lips are loosed, his mouth was open, and he began to speak. And what does he say? He praises God. The first thing out of his mouth is that he began to speak in praise to God. And fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him, and his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in the spirit, and he lived in the desert until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The first thing that comes out of Zechariah's mouth after it's been loosed after nine months is to praise the Lord. We don't know specifically that what that praise was that first came out, but then the Holy Spirit comes on him and he prophesies. And, and it, it's an amazing prophecy. I wish that we could spend time di just digging into that, but like always, Isaac has this much and we only get this. Breaking down his prophecy, the first thing that he says, he praises God for his presence with Israel. Again, I mentioned this idea comes from the Old Testament, and it's, it's an amazing thing in that God, the God of the universe, dwells with his people, is present with his people. And Zechariah praises God for that presence. He then praises God for his redemption, because all the way from the beginning, God had been prophesying that he would redeem his people. And now, the time is almost there. The forerunner of Christ, the Messiah, is John, who was just born. God's getting stuff ready and things are, are moving. He praises God for his mercy. He praises God for his covenant and for, for the fulfillment of his Old Testament prophecies and his promises. And then he says that our task is to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness. And he ends up closing out his prophecy about John and what John specifically would do. So what? 
I've said it before, I'll probably continue saying it. I love studying scripture. I love understanding what's in there. I, I think that it's very important that we slow down and we understand some of the cultural things that are going on that at first read we don't necessarily catch. But after reading the word, which we ought to do in this upcoming year, right? I would, I would encourage you, if you don't have a reading plan, get one. There's several back in the corner over here that you can choose from. There's great ones online. Make a plan and start reading God's word. After you read it, ask some questions about it. Try and figure out what's going on, what's it saying, uh, how does this all work? And obviously, you gotta do due diligence. You have to do the work. But once you've gotten through that, so what? What difference does it make? What can we draw from this? Why, one of, the, one of the big questions, why did Luke even record this? Luke wanted us to realize that John wasn't just some crazy guy out in the wilderness. He wanted his reader to understand that that guy who'd spent time out in the wilderness and, and all of that stuff that was going on, that was a prophesied forerunner of the Messiah. And here's the story of how that came about. And God gave us John the Baptist or the baptizer, however you want to call him, gave us this to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill Old Testament, and to prepare the way for the Messiah, for Christ to come, which we've been celebrating this last month with Christmas. In seeing that, we have a few takeaways. First of all, I want to point out that no one stands in isolation. See, God used normal people to bring about his extraordinary plan. It's easy for us to go just day in and day out. You head into this new year, another, another day, another dollar, another day of work, I'm just going to show up, I'm just going to... And that's kind of who Elizabeth and Zachariah were. He was probably nearing retirement, and yet God was able to do this amazing thing and fulfill his promise. We need to be ready to be used by God, whatever it might be. And, and sometimes it may be normal, mundane ways, and sometimes it may be crazy, extraordinary ways. But are you ready to be used by God, however it is that he might want to? If you're a follower of Christ, you can't rest on your laurels. I already mentioned that Zechariah, he was a good, solid individual. We get the impression from what what Luke records that he was, you know, he was of the right family. He was doing his job. He was living right. He was doing the right things. But when, when Gabriel showed up and had a message for him, when God spoke to him, his first reaction was to doubt God's word. And he, he tried to do his own thing. He wanted to go his own way. As you head into this new year, maybe, maybe last year was great. Maybe five years ago was great. I don't know how long ago it was. Maybe, and I, I don't know. I'm still getting to know most folks, so I'm not pointing you out if this was you. But maybe for the last little while, you've been just coasting, resting on your laurels. You did everything right, but now, you know, I, I can relax. And then all of a sudden, God's going to say, hey, I want you to talk to this person at the grocery store and tell them about Jesus. Go over to your neighbor and share the love of Christ with them. Whatever it is. It may be big, it may be small. Who knows? Maybe in this year coming up, God says, hey, I want you to be an overseas missionary. That'd be big. That'd be exciting. What's your reaction going to be? Is it going to be, nah, prove it. Prove to me that that's what you want me to do. If we've rested on our laurels and coasted, it's very easy to have that response. Maybe you already know that God's calling you to do something and you've been hesitant to accept that. Maybe you've already been like Zechariah and been like, no, no, uh, I don't think that's really what God wants me to do. You've been hesitant to accept God's call in your life and perhaps you've even felt his gentle rebuke. You, you might be able to talk to us right now, but in some way, God has, has rebuked you and you've spent nine months in silence. I don't know. When God gives us an opportunity, be like Zacharias. Accept what God has said and do what he commanded. 
there will come a point at which you can say, his name is John because I, I trust God's word, I rely on it, I stand on it. Even if you've been rebuked, even if you, know, you didn't initially jump at the opportunity to do what God wanted you to, now's a great opportunity, now's a great time. See, if God has called you to do something, you can do it simply by trusting him and saying, all right, I will do what God has said. I don't know what it's going to look like. I mean, this is an older couple. Now they're having a baby. How's that going to work out? There's all kinds of questions. But Zacharias says his name is John. And the first words out of his mouth is to praise God for who he is. Maybe you're like Elizabeth. You've trusted God through hard times, through what ultimately becomes public disgrace in essence, because she didn't have any kids. And you trusted him through all of that, and an opportunity came for, for God to just really bless your socks right off. Praise him for it. That's her response. Her immediate response is to praise God and recognize that God has taken away the, the rebuke, taken away the, the, the displeasure. Praise God for who he is and what he's done recognize that those blessings have come from him. Or maybe, maybe you're like the pair of them. And someone like Mary comes your way. Someone who's worried, in dire straits, scared, doesn't know where to turn, and you can open your house to them and, and provide sanctuary. It may not even be that they live with you for three months. Just a little bit of peace and comfort, but... I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll have to save that one for next week. We'll look at Mary and, and how that happens. I don't know where you individually are. Maybe you hear all of this and you're like, eh, following Jesus, that's, that's something I've heard about. And you don't follow him at all. I don't know. Wherever you are, whatever state you might be in, God gives us an opportunity to trust him to accept what he's said. And we can even be like Zacharias and hear it once and, eh, I don't know about that, prove it. But later have an opportunity to turn around and say, okay, God, you're right. I want to do your way. I want to do your thing. It is my hope and prayer that each one of us will do that. Whether we've failed before or not, that we will accept God's word, follow it, and live this upcoming year for him. That's what God wants us to do. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story and, and account of Zacharias and, and all that goes on. And Lord, I know as, as I read through it and, and talk about it, I, I have all kinds of questions about how did this work? What did that look like? And Lord, I don't want to add to your word. We know that what you have recorded is exactly what we need to, to know. So Lord, as we, as we ask questions of Scripture and we try to understand these things, help us, help us to understand what you've recorded for us. And Lord, as we see individuals like Zechariah and, and Elizabeth and the struggles that they had and the difficulties that they had, Lord, we recognize that we also face some of those. Help us to react to, to your word and your guide, your leading in a way that brings you the glory and honor and that Ultimately, we can be like this couple and, and praise you and glorify you and tell your word to others. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we've had together. pray that you would guide us. In Jesus' name, amen.